Hi, everybody. Hey, guys. Thanks, everyone, for your patience for last week's episode. It really wasn't that big a deal. I, You can tell I'm in, like, some version of project management because I'm like, apologies for the delay. Apologies for the delay of the podcast you don't have to pay for. Because then I went through and I was like, and I almost didn't do this because I was like, no, no, I was listening to it, like, right up until the second I texted you about it and I was like no it's fine and then I was like I'll do one more listen and I listened and for some reason like it would get to the part like it, it would instead of Tori spelling you'd hear from you go Ori spelling and I'm like oh, the fuck that. happened <laughs> so I literally just sat there and when it would happen I would just like fix it a little bit and I'm like I don't even know what did this <laughs> like whatever I hate technology why it's- isn't it easy why is all technology not as easy as Canva which I'm obsessed with I know that sounds even better than Photoshop. I liked what's our what's our podcast um, template called? Gossipy Girl Podcast. I think it's called Pink Gossip Podcast. <laughs> pink Creative Got it's a bunch of words and pink and gossip are in there. I'm like, fair enough. It's so cute, and the template picture is two girls like leaning in and lo- like laughing, giggling. Oh my god! Like, oh my god, gossip! <laughs> oh my god! Did you hear what Benson wore? It was an ugly gray suit. Pass it on. Oh my god, did you see that Monique tried no vest this week? It mm. was okay. Mm. It was an okay actually, attempt. She actually generally looks pretty good. She looks better in season one than Olivia does. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, so today we're going to be talking about Law Order SVU season one, episode 14, and it's called Limitations. Original air date, February 11th, 2000, and directed by our friend Constantine Makris. From Stocks and Bondage. Yay! Oh my god. I was so excited. When I saw his name pop up, I'm like, he's from an earlier episode. I'm like, which one? Good old Stocks and Bondage. This is a lot less fun than Stocks and Bondage, but it's still a good episode. Yeah, it's not really fun, but it's, there's still, we make it fun. Don't worry. Well, we haven't, we did the thing again because we liked it, where we didn't discuss it beforehand, so... I think it'll be fun. I have some these fun. These are going to be, oh yeah, these are going to be some spicy, fresh takes. Yeah. Not old takes, like we watched this a week ago and have been talking about it for a week. It's all fresh. Well, I'm going to kick off this episode by talking a little bit about Comstat because this episode is going to begin with a Comstat meeting. I'm glad that you took an interest in this because I kid you not, the title, the opening scene, I say subcourt hearing and then I write, I don't know what this is. <laughs> basically seems like an airing of grievances but that kind of is what comstat is so comstat was invented by jack maple who was an nypd police officer during like the bad old days of nyc so he's this guy he's known as a sharp dresser he would be seen walking around the city wearing a homburg hat he had polished wingtip shoes tailored three-piece suits and a bow tie so he really didn't look like your typical cop of the 70s and 80s And he worked in transit, which was basically considered the most dangerous beat you could have at that time because the subway in the 70s and 80s was a fucking free-for-all. Oh, I see. I'm hearing transit like that he was a traffic cop and he's dressed all swaggy and they're like, oh my God. No, he was down on the subway. And so it was really bad. Like you could basically be sitting on a subway car. 20 people could just attack you, like rip away your wallet, your jewelry. It was really bad. A quick refresher, due to a number of factors, NYC was really rough, like I said, in the 70s and 80s. There's a drug epidemic, financial crisis, there's general dysfunction in the NYPD. 
it's real bad. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the documentary Fear City, but they talk about how police would like hand out this pamphlet that were basically like, don't leave your apartment after six. Uh, you will get murdered. And we're not really going to do anything about it. I read it because uh, she sent it to me. And at first I'm like, what? I'm like, who put that? Because it was like blatantly calling out the mayor too, Mayor Beam. And I'm like, what was this? Was this like the pink berets? And I'm like, oh, no, it was the cops. No, the cops. They were just like, yeah, we're not going to do anything. So you should probably just stay inside. It said even in Midtown, there are muggings. And I was just like, that's such a funny like thing to read. It's not funny, but it's like because Midtown is like so touristy now that it's still, you know, stuff still happens in Midtown. I'm not going to, I'm not like, <laughs> Midtown is so safe new york is so safe um but like <laughs> they're like even in midtown oh dear i dropped chapstick so the police weren't really interested in fixing anything they just kind of like responded to calls they would not investigate a robbery unless it was over ten thousand dollars so basically there was no systemic focus on preventing crimes they would just kind of respond as it happened and as you can see the crime rate was just I was going to say, that's um, not a great way to handle it. I'm not an expert, but. And neither were any of these people, except this Jack Maple guy who basically took a look at what was happening. And he was like, this is the wrong way to do police work. So as anyone who wants to change things is going to find out, all the other cops fucking hated him. Yeah. And they would give him like the worst beats. They would try to like send him out to like the far reaches of the city. And he would just hold on hold his head high and continue to do the work and once he was put in more of a position of power he was like all right i'm gonna start changing things so he starts putting up maps and on these maps he would pinpoint crimes and where they were committed and he called these maps charts of the future so basically he would have different colors that corresponded to the different crimes um, and this was just for the subway so you would see along different stops oh there were muggings at this time every day just specifically between these routes. So he would send cops at that time to those routes and they would just start catching people. He was able to reduce crime in the subway by 27% using these methods. And this started to get people's attention. So this was in the 70s. 70s and 80s. 70s going into 80s. Right. So I just want to make a note that this was um, pretty recent that, <laughs> that this guy figured out like a, a process that worked. Oh, yeah. No, it was a fucking free for all for like 20 years. And then I my understanding is he was a cop over the course of these 20 years. And probably for the first 10, nothing was happening until he was around enough to get into this position of power. And luckily, he was never deterred by all the cop. Like they literally sent him to like the far reaches of the city. And all he would do was he would just wait. He would transfer through Times Square and he knew he would catch somebody. So he'd catch someone in Times Square. And once you caught someone, that was the rest of your day because you need to bring them in, handle right. paperwork. So he never actually went to any of these assignments. He was just like, go in, catch the guy. And I'm attracted to him. Oh, he's a very dapper fellow. I'll send you a picture once this is over. But I just yeah. love that this is like his, he's just like smarter than everybody. He's like, yeah, I probably should have been an engineer, but I'd rather, you know, help the world. So then enter Bill Bratton. He becomes head of the New York Transit Police Department while Maple worked as a lieutenant. And he was noticing that his way of crime fighting showed a dramatic decrease in robberies. So when he was promoted to police co commissioner in 1994, mind you. So this is pretty recent. This is so sad. And in correlation to the episodes we're watching, this is only six years before yeah. we enter into SVU. 
So he took Maple with him and he became the deputy police commissioner and Charts of the Future becomes rebranded as Comstat. So this Comstat program revolutionized the police department and became like a symbol of police accountability. And he would hold these weekly Comstat meetings. And Comstat basically means that they pinpoint all these crimes, take into account all these reports that have come in, see what's going on in the different neighborhoods. And they would hold these meetings, they would bring the captains in, and they would hold them accountable. They would be like, here are the numbers in your district. This is what's going on. Why is this happening? Why haven't you dealt with this? And these police officers who had been working for 20, 30, 40, 50 years as police officers were suddenly getting treated like kids, like who had never done their job before and they would like puke before meetings because they would be so nervous and <laughs> it was like it was like apparently really bad but there are all these police officers there that just weren't really doing anything and so he finally got police officers to use data and to actually fix the problems and this is credited to having basically turned around New York City and you know fix the crime problem i will say this system, while it may have done some good, also has been kind of, how can I say this? Some bad has definitely come from Comstat because all of this data they're getting is coming from the reports of police officers. So if you know you're going to get in trouble if there is such and such rapes, you might approach a victim and be like, are you sure you were raped? Do you think it, why don't we kind of press charges more this way? Um, this is a real life story. A sex worker was raped she called an officer and the officer was like oh well instead of a rape what if we call this a theft of service and she's like no i was raped and another officer came along and was like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. no this is going to be a rape they run this guy's dna and he has been sexually assaulting other women so because he actually did things the right way they caught this guy but there are other officers running around trying to kind of fudge the numbers so that's one problem uh, another problem is that you're expected to get a number of people. So some officers are out oh, there just yeah. arresting people for standing on their sidewalk and they're like, you're obstructing pedestrian traffic. So there's good and bad to the system. This system is still in place. It's used in many major cities around the country. Um, some There's some good things about it. There's some bad things about it. There are some studies that suggest it really didn't have anything to do with the de decrease in crime at NYC because at the same time, they figured out lead made people super violent and they stopped putting lead in everything. <laughs> so that's like one possibility. The, the uh, crack cocaine epidemic ended. So that's another factor. So no, this is a legitimate study. They were like, hey, wow, we stopped putting lead and people just stopped going bonkers and like murdering people that's that's amazing oh my god <laughs> so with that being said um that's my little history of comstat i highly encourage everyone to check out the podcast reply all they have two episodes called the crime machine part one and two and they go into the history of jack maple and comstat and the issues surrounding it really good episodes um i probably fudge some of that up but with that being said let's move into this comstat meeting <laughs> So my original notes before I re-educated myself about Comstat was I called this, we open upon a public shaming. Yeah. <laughs> because this does appear to be a public shaming. There's Commissioner Lyle Morris, and he 
basically has all this information about a string of robberies. And he is, like I said before, questioning the shit out of this one captain. This captain's like sweating bullets and he's like, okay, so there was these string of robberies. So you realize there was a pattern after the third. You didn't report it until the seventh. And this guy's just like sweating profusely. And Lyle basically tells him he sucks at his job and he's going to be reassigned. Meanwhile, Benson Stabler and Cragen. Cragen's looking cute. He's got like his little like suit on with all his medals. And I don't know. Is that his captain's coat? Yeah, I guess it's his formal captain's attire. He looks very cute. I'm very attracted to Craig in this episode. Oh, you Just are? yelling. Oh my God, I'm so mad at him, actually. Commissioner Morris tells Craig that they understand that they have a bus masturbator because all the, there were all these reports of a dude jacking off on a bus. Craig's like, yep, thanks to Benson and Stabler, we've got this guy. And Commissioner Morris, who probably doesn't get to laugh a lot at his job, is like, hope they clean the seats. That's a good probably point. Probably not. But well, that's a good point. They probably didn't. Um, I know someone does. I've seen it happen. But also, he probably doesn't get to laugh at his job a lot because he's dealing with like crimes all over the city, different types of crime and people who aren't doing their jobs. And he has to like, he's probably mad. Like just I don't this guy probably like doesn't eat any red meat. He'll have like a heart attack. Oh, yeah. No, he seems really stressed. So then he says, next slide, and a map of Midtown, haha, <laughs> Midtown, pops up with pins to, I think it was only the three different addresses, but when I first watched it, I was like, it was so many addresses. So he asks Cragen if he recognized the addresses that are pinned up on the map, and Cragen says no. So the map shows three locations of three break-in rapes that occurred less than a week of each other back in February 1995. So last week, the ME matched DNA backlog to these three cases, and the DNA matched the same unknown assailant. Commissioner Morris says, did you know about these three rapes? And Cragen was like, no. And Commissioner Morris goes, they were in the circular that was issued to the precinct last week. So it's, I didn't come across this in my research, but it sounds like weekly they probably send around this, I'm going to call it a newsletter, but it's obviously a lot more serious than that with all this information. But I still think it's really weird that no one contacted Craigan directly. Kinda. Um, so Craigan says, well, I was in homicide in 1995. And Commissioner says that he doesn't care, essentially, and that he should have been looking into these cold cases, doing research on those cases with the statute of limitations was coming up soon. So Craigan admitted he kind of let these three cases go because he considered they were cold cases, which I found to be disturbing. And then the judge says that that's fine because we have one of the victims from the 1995 assaults here to read an impact statement. So this woman strides in. Her name is Victoria Kraft, and she is not to be trifled with. Holy shit. So she strides in and she describes her attack. A man broke into her apartment. He stripped. He climbed into bed with her. He assaulted her, maced her in the face and left. She called the police and no arrest was ever made. And then she recently learned from Morris that there were two other victims, and she asks SVU to reinvestigate her case before the statute of limitations expires. The statute of limitations in New York City, probably New York State actually, for rape is only five years, and Victoria duly notes that it's harder to dodge a parking ticket. As usual, Cragen's like, yes, we will look into this. And he looks embarrassed. Dun dun! dun. dun. Michelle Hurd gets added to the credits for literally probably the next five episodes, and then she's going to get booted, but 
She gets to be in the credits for the first time. Congrats, Michelle. Oh, my God. I never even noticed she wasn't in them. Well, fortunately, Michelle, I didn't even read those. So I didn't know you were in there or not. I just wasn't reading. <laughs> so we are back at the bullpen and Elliot, Liv, and Cregan come tru- trudging in. And Cregan is angrily ripping off his fancy police coat. Jeffries is all chipper because she's in the credits now. And she's like, how is Compstat? And they're like, it sucks. But it's the best system they've got. No weeds out the slackers. Meanwhile, Munch is typing up some notes on a typewriter, even though they have computers. Cragen sends Jeffries and Munch to talk about, to talk to another victim from 1995. Her name is Jennifer Neal. And he also sends Benson Stabler to talk to the two other victims. And he says, same doer, same MO. So we're at doer again. Oh, yeah. Jeffries is appalled to see that these cases are from 1995. Jeffries and I are both appalled. Oh, yeah. She's like, these cases are from 1999. And Craig is still playing it cool. Because, like, my whole, th- I wrote here, I was like, he's just playing it cool. He's like, yeah, 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 uh, we're going to work through it. And he says that the Emmy is working through 12,000 rape kits and explains the matching DNA uh, that the assailant wasn't in the system. So they are going to call this perp John Doe 121, just based on his DNA records. And his MO is breaking into women's apartments. He climbs into bed with them while they are asleep. His face is covered with a stocking. He rapes them, maces them, and then leaves out the front door. And Jeffrey's kind of questions that he raped three people and then stopped. So they go over his appearance, and based on, based on the victim's descriptions, the most notable one was he had long, dark hair in 1995, which, you know, that doesn't really narrow it down, I guess, because a lot of people did. So then they say his weight is 160. And I'm like, how the fuck do you know that? I thought that was weird, too. Uh, I guess like that's an average. Like if you were to describe somebody. No, that's pretty skinny. Actually, that's very skinny. For six, especially. So they say he's between 5'10 and 6'1. 160 would be tiny. So, huh. I guess that would stand. Maybe not. Again, maybe not a skinny, long haired guy in New York. <laughs> maybe not. So Cragen. Tells them to start investigating. He's going to go to the DNA to try to get an arrest warrant. And they're like, for fucking who? He's like, DNA, for the DNA, John Doe 121. And Jeffrey's like, oh, yeah, they're trying that in Wisconsin. So I very much like the choice of this scene. I like the visual. Cragen pulls out a chalkboard and then he writes four, three, one, and then puts the picture of each victim underneath. And basically, that is how many days they have until the statute of limitations expires on each victim. Parting note is that, again, Jeffries kind of goes, um, the statute of limitations is in, <laughs> is in few days. And Craig, it's like, yeah, that's the point. It's like, everyone stop reminding me that this happened. Dun, dun. So we are at the apartment of Lois Crean and we meet the second victim. Benson and Stabler are here and they tell her that they know it's been five years. Maybe she's remembered something that she didn't tell the police the first time. She's really withdrawn and uncomfortable. And she kind of looks like that comedian Lauren Lapidus. She reminded me of um, Joan Cusack. Yes. Yeah. Like a very, because you know how Joan Cusack looked like she's about to burst into tears like at any given moment. Yes. And so does Lois Crean. Benson asks how the assailant left after the attack because her file doesn't mention it. Lois says she doesn't remember. Benson gives her her card, and Lois seems distraught uh, that she wasn't much help, she said. I said, thank God Munch isn't here. He would have said, oh, I'll tell my captain that you solved the case. You know, we have five days to fix this. This episode is really light on Munch, and it's probably because of that. I need to start treating these like new people every time I meet them. <laughs> Except for like some personality things, because every, every episode I'm like, excuse me, that is not what you said last week. 
Dun dun. We're at a fancy legal building and Cragen is following 88 Kathleen Eastman and he's trying to convince her to persuade a judge to issue a warrant on John Doe 121. She's like, oh yeah, the Wisconsin thing. She goes, what do you want from me? And I wrote, geez, no one wants to do their job. But I guess that was the thing. Not a lot happens in the scene. Basically, they go back and forth and finally she relents and takes the DNA profile from him and gives him a pissed off look. Yeah, she confirms that it's basically a lot of work. It probably won't work because like the whole thing probably no one wants to do this thing because it's basically a lot of work and they just don't want anyone's civil liberties to be infringed upon. None of it is a good reason for me. We'll get to that sexy judge when we get to that sexy judge. (laughs) Not the middle sexy judge. He's not sexy. Dun dun, we're at Eastern Health Services. Munch and Jeffries are there and they're speaking with the third victim, Jennifer Neal. So Jennifer is, oh, she is very stereotypically kind of like hippie 90s, early thousands woman. Like, you know, when you had that friend in middle school whose mom like listened to the Benedictine monks like way after everyone else's did. Like that's Jennifer's whole thing. She's very like flowy, nerdy. So she tells him that after she was raped, she received an outpouring of support from, quote, the people in my life, and that she healed as a result of that support because she felt like she was a part of a community who cared for her. So as a result, she has left the assault and everything behind her. There's something a little off about Jennifer. So Bunch says, we're opening your case. And she goes, oh, and the way she said it kind of made me feel like she probably like they walked in and identified themselves. And she was like, oh, I know what this is about and started telling him about how she was over it. So they tell her the other victims reported similar things that she did, like the attacker knowing intimate details of her their lives. And Jeffries asks if she's remembered anything new. And she says nothing she didn't tell the police five years ago. So same as Lois from earlier. Um, she does say she's very reluctant to revisit the past. And she she just wants it to be over. And I'm like, OK, well, are you at peace with it or do you want it to be over? So dun dun. We're at City Hall again, and redheaded DA and Cragen chase down the judge. And Cragen says, excuse me, judge, but we need an arrest warrant. And the judge replies, and I need to eat lunch. So I'm calling this episode, no one wants to do their job. So this is Judge Ridenauer, um in his very first appearance, played by Harvey Atkin. He's going to appear in 18 episodes over the next 12 years. So we see, we see a lot of this guy. He, he looked very familiar to me. I don't blame him for not wanting to deal with this right away because he was basically like, you guys had five years to deal with this. Let me have till the end of the day to think about this. Yeah, agree. That's what I said, too. I was like, because they're like, we need this now. And he goes, yeah, well, you've uh, you've, like had five years. So it's like when you're at your job and someone's like, hey, I really need that thing from you. And you're like, how long have you known you needed that thing from me? And they're like, well, we've been planning this for a few weeks. It's like, all right. And you asked me at four o'clock on a Friday. Right. And you're like rushing me and yelling at me and saying, we need a warrant. And it's like, I need to do research on this. I need to, I can't just be handing out warrants, Cragen. Cragen. Dun dun. So we are at Kraft International Electronics and we're back with Vicki Kraft. She tells Benson and Staler she was disappointed in the detectives originally assigned to her case. And she's kind of the complete opposite of Jennifer and Lois. She's very confident. She's loud in a good way. It's a pretty cool juxtaposition between the three of them because it's just da- it's different layers of, t- I guess you could say, type of victim. Victoria's obviously the type where she's just like not going to 
let this go. And I mean that respectfully, not like everyone else in this entire episode. Uh, She's going to keep fighting for this as long as she literally can. And the other two are kind of like, obviously, Lois is scared and Jennifer is over it. I found peace with the people in my life. So Victoria Kraft tells them she was not pleased with her original detectives and she hired a private investigator and hands them his report. And this investigator interviewed a man who saw a kid on a bike fleeing the scene. And Olivia says that they would like to talk to him. And Victoria Kraft fixes like very icy cold blue eyes. And she's like, you should. Fucker. Yeah. And they look at her kind of like, like that was rude. And it's like, yeah. Dun dun. They're now at Victoria's old apartment, I think. So they're talking to the neighbor from the building where this attack happened. And he explains that the guy that he saw coming out from the alley was speeding away on a green bike and he almost hit the witness. And so he fell. Witness went over to help him. uh, And then the guy got up and just rode away. So he describes the bike in great detail, and it's because he works at a bike shop. And I'm like, what a, what a lovely convenience. I was like, that is so convenient. And this kid was wearing a motorcycle helmet, I guess, uh, so he couldn't see what he looked like. And the guy was also wearing a jumpsuit. And then they ask if it could have been a uniform. He's like, I don't know. It's been five years. Also fair. <laughs> I just love this whole episode. They're like, yeah, it's been five years. And everyone's like, we know. We know, guys. We were busy. Dun, dun. dun. We're at Supreme Court now, the more important court. They're uh, discussing Vicky's case in particular because we have three cases, three days. So Judge Ridenauer tells ADA Eastman and Cragen that the idea itself is genius. And he kind of goes into the history of the statute of limitations. And he's like, oh, but when we codified that, we didn't know that we were going to have these advancements today. And while he thinks this idea is novel... He doesn't think it's his place to grant this application, so he denies it. And everyone's pissed at him, and Victoria Kraft marches out, and he's, he's really nice, and I think he's just trying to do his best. He talk, he, then he turns to the ADA, he's like, are you going to appeal this? She's like, absolutely. And he's like, good, because I already passed on the paperwork. If this is going to work, I want it to help Victoria. But once again not my place to make this ruling. And the recurring logic behind this is that it's basically unconstitutional or like maybe not even unconstitutional, just not fair to have citizens kind of waiting around on the possibility that they might be arrested somewhere down the line. And it's just kind of a funny, they're like, they're like, yeah, no, all of this makes a lot of sense. And we feel really bad, but like Americans deserve the right to commit crimes and then get away with them if possible. So wild that rape has a statute of limitations. It's just. So Olivia chases Victoria Kraft, who has run out of the courtroom, and she and Stabler catch up and they tell her it's going to be okay. And she's like, uh, no, it's not. You basically waited all this time. Now you're trying to use legal trickery to cover your fuck up instead of just catching the rapist. She basically bitches them out and leaves. And she's not wrong. Yep, she says, and today, another person in a long line of incompetence has just told me, sorry, Vicky, you got raped and we're not going to do jack about it. And she turns to Cragen and goes, thank you for making this the second worst day of my entire life. I think you know what the first was. Ooh, dun dun. Back at the station, Cragen sighs and he walks over to the chalkboard and updates the numbers, writing expired over Victoria Kraft's picture. And he basically is like, listen, even if we catch this guy, he is never going to be tried for the rape of Victoria Kraft, and she is never going to see the justice she deserves. So they can continue to pursue charges for the other two, and she can testify at the trial for the other two victims. 
Munch bitches about this for some reason because he's concerned about his civil liberties and the other detectives bitch at him. Yeah, Munch's whole thing was that he said he used to be a thorn in the government's side and would hate it if the government capriciously investigated and came after him at some point. And so part of me feels like that was because he shoplifted too many candy bars and he's exaggerating or he also or the other half of me is like he committed some version of domestic terrorism. (laughs) I could see him like blowing up a place that did too much pollution or something. Yeah. And then finally, Cragen yells, because that's what he does best. And he's like, we won't be arresting anyone unless we basically solve the case for the other two. So fucking get back to work. So dun dun. The 31st Precinct Robbery Unit. Uh, so Jeffries and Munch are speaking with a detective from Vicky's case in 1995. And I think her name is Ruby. I don't think they say it here, but I looked it up and her, the only other lady that made sense was named Ruby. And she kind of looks like a ruby. She looks like a ruby. So she used to be at SVU, but transferred after Vicky's case went cold. And it was partially, so it was equal parts. It was super frustrating that the case went cold and they couldn't find any other evidence. And also because Vicky started to sue her for being derelict in her duties. So she makes kind of a Debbie Downer face, which makes me laugh. Um, she seems a little apathetic. Yes. So we're going to meet three detectives each one who investigated these various assaults. And they kind of all range from apathetic, which is Ruby. The next guy is someone who's very emotional. And then the last guy's awful. Ruby says that based on the fact that John Doe was able to sneak, this part confused me. Um, Based on the fact that John Doe was able to sneak into apartment buildings without being detected, she suspected that he was a typical nobody type of guy, like a uh, delivery guy or a meter mate or something like that, a paper boy, um, people that you see every day and you might not think about them being a threat to somebody. So then John lets her know. He goes, well, now he's a triple nobody. And she says, and she's making a face kind of like, you know, that emoji where they're just smiling, but there's no eyebrows. That's kind of the face that she's making. She's like, what do you mean? And he tells her about the other rapes <laughs> and her face stays the same. And she just goes, I hate to hear that. And I'm like, did you have a Xanax bar before coming to work today, Ruby? She's, Yeah, she's just like very apathetic towards everything. Now, one thing she said was that she figured that this person would basically approach the buildings and then get buzzed in saying they had a package. I'm like, well, did anyone report someone saying they had a package and then not dropping it off? Wouldn't the police have like cased the building and been like, hey, did anything weird happen? And someone would have been like, oh, yeah, someone said they had a package for me and they never showed up. What confused me about that description was that it doesn't fit his MO because how would if, if he was buzzing in to the victim's apartments, his MO, and they said it twice, they would wake up, guy was in their bed, looking at them with a stocking mask, and they were like always surprised by it. But he would go out the front door. So it's like, how did he get in? They set it up as the MO was like one thing, but now they're like, yeah, he was able to buzz in and out of buildings uh, without being detected. I'm like, and pick the locks into the apartments? I mean, maybe. Bye, Ruby. Dun, dun. We're moving on to the nice guy. So Benson and Stabler follow a former detective around his new job, and they talk to him about Jennifer Neal. And he says she was really nice, and the perp knew all about her, what kind of car she drove, where she worked, where she shopped. And they never really figured out how he knew all this stuff. They thought maybe he tapped her phone or read her mail. So then they tell him about the two other cases from the same perp, And he starts asking about the other detectives. So Ruby, he liked Ruby, who we just met in the last scene. But the other, Latimer, he's basically like, oh, fuck that guy. So Latimer, 
is just this dirtbag who says that most rapes are actually fantasies that occurred. And he screwed up another case and then was given the choice, retire or be fired. And he now runs a cop bar out in Queens. And Olivia is like, so what made you get out of SVU? And I think he was Brian cassidy Yeah, he was. They didn't give us a lot of details, but basically he was on a case of a woman who was raped, murdered, and tortured. So now we're at the 1013. So I looked up the code 1013, and in the NYPD system, that means officer needs help. I don't know if that's the joke, or it's just called the 1013. That was probably just a joke. So we meet Loudmer, who says SVU detectives are garbage collectors. And Stabler's trying with this guy. He tries to kind of like butter him up and says he wants to talk to him about one of his old cases. He sneers at them and says he's not a cop anymore. And Stabler like shows him Lois's picture and he's like, yeah, I, I know it's hard, but why don't you just take a look? That would be so helpful. And Olivia's like, well, you hardly took any notes on this case. And he's like, oh. You try really hard for every case, you'll run yourself into the ground. Which basically was seemed to be everyone's approach to this case. Don't try too hard. And he called Lois. Uh, he takes a look at the picture and he calls her a little Trekkie. And, and I'm assuming that means Star Trek. Like, That's what I thought. He goes on to say that Lois's case was a standard ONS. And they're like, what's that? And he goes, one night stand. And so his logic for this case was that because Lois was, quote, the bookworm type, she probably had a one night stand, but then felt guilty about it and decided to report the case, report it as rape to somehow make up for her shame. And I'm like, shocking that you were fired. Second note, he is drinking milk. That to me was more psychotic than if he had like a whole handle of vodka and was just shooting it. He said like one stupid thing and then he punctuated it with taking a big sip of a glass of milk. And it's a 16 ounce glass. That's so much milk. So Stabler tells this fucking dick that about the two other rapes and much like, much like Ruby, he goes, so I made a mistake. Let me buy you a drink. And they just get up and leave because no. Yeah, no. Dun dun. We're now at, oh God, I wrote down a word I don't understand. The appellate division. So for the final time, our redheaded ADA is here and she's making her case to a new judge. He's kind of hot. Yeah, he is. He is kind of hot. And I was expecting more from him. (laughs) Yes. So he has a deep voice. He's hot. And he gives a long ass speech. And despite objections from Eastman and Cragen, he also basically just says no. He's snarky. And he basically says that it doesn't make sense that they should just find a random swab of DNA and then decide to go, as he put it, run around testing the entire city to see if there's possibly a match. And they're like, yeah, but that's not what we're doing. And he's like, well, it's what it seems like you're doing. So no. And it's like circumventing the law is what he kind of ends with. So he pounds his gavel. And then poor Lois, who was sitting in the galley, because this is her trial, by the way, it's Lois's court hearing. She starts having a panic attack. And she starts repeating, I forget what it was, but basically a positive affirmation that you repeat when you're having panic attacks, if you can. It's really sad. She is just, she is beside herself. And it's just awful. I feel like that reaction alone as a judge would be enough for me to be like okay well maybe we should look into this because this guy's not this woman's having a panic attack right in front of me yeah i could be a judge because i'd be like never mind issue the warrant i don't care this is making me feel bad so so benson and stabler are back with lois in her apartment and 
she this is really sad she tells them that the before this the worst thing that had ever happened to her was when brandon lee died filming the crow which i thought was odd at first um but apparently lois just had this deep affinity for brandon lee and that movie and it just struck her as really beautiful and tragic so she just a little weird olivia asks for more details and lois tells her that the rape itself wasn't the worst part it was what he said he knew that she liked brandon and he wanted to talk about the crow and then he called her lolly which is her grandmother's nickname for her and then the other detective asshole latimer told her that she should talk to a shrink like she made all this stuff up so they tell her she isn't crazy and they ask her if she thought maybe he tapped her phone and she doesn't. And he knew things that she didn't talk about on the phone, which I'm like, I can't remember what I talked about on the phone five years ago, but OK. Yeah, things that she's like, no, there I didn't talk about things like that on the phone, such as where she rollerbladed in the park. And I wrote, my stalker would never be able to do this. He would have nothing to talk about with me. Yeah, there would be no roller. Ugh, they'd probably just talk to me about walking my dog. And I'd be like, I was listening to a podcast. Mind your own fucking business. Right? Like, I'm trying to think of what they would get me on now. It would literally just be, <laughs> you'd be like, I saw you go into Zara and then leave crying. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I couldn't afford anything and nothing fit. I'm really conscious of people listening to me when I'm walking around in public. So I literally, anytime anyone came, I would have scared this guy because I would have been like, I keep fucking seeing you and you keep trying to listen to the shit I'm saying. You have to be pretty close to someone, or at least to me, because I probably talk pretty quietly. I like how I'm like, he can just come and try to stalk me. They didn't mention what he knew about Victoria, which is kind of funny, because I was thinking, I'm like, Victoria seems like the type of person where if you walk too close to her, she would be like, hey, get off me. Yeah, no, that I, I would actually like to know. Yeah. What happened there, but. It was probably like her gym. Vicky seems like the type that like runs like you know, just every day, like for five hours uh, with like a, an early Bluetooth on her head. Oh, she power walks. She's probably a power walker. Definitely. So Benson asks her if when she was in the park where she was rollerblading, she remembered anybody on a bicycle because they have the tip about the bicycle. Right then Lois becomes alert and she says, yes, yes, there was a green bicycle. And she said that she kind of, she, it's almost like she just remembered it, but it was kind of one of those things where she's like, oh, shit, yeah, I mentioned that. And then she says that she mentioned it to d- asshole Latimer, and he just brushed it off. He basically was like, yeah, you're going to be seeing a lot of guys who look like your rapist. That's kind of how this works. Which I'm kind of like, she said it happened before. Right. And I think he was just like, yeah, yeah, I was probably picking his nose and was like, yeah, okay. Exactly. This guy was following her around from place to place on a green bike. And then she did say that she kind of thought she was overreacting at first. But then the more she thought about it post the attack, she thought that was really weird. I did keep seeing that guy in Latimer. She's just like, it's kind of, I say unraveling, not disrespectfully, but she's realizing how effed this whole thing is. Yes. And so it's sort of like her awakening to like, holy shit, they really bungled this. Like they bungled yes. this my whole life. It's kind of unfortunate about the different detectives getting the different victims because I think the the nice guy could have gotten that out of her and that might have gone somewhere. And if Vicky Kraft had gotten Latimer, he would have gotten fired the next day and it would have been amazing. And if Ruby had gotten Jennifer, she would have been pretty cool with her just being like, I want to put this behind me. I'm at peace. The two of them just <laughs> would have sat there and been like, yeah, man. Dun dun. We're at Millennial Investigations. 
Um, I wrote, that's what we would name our detective agency. <laughs> same. That's what I wrote, too. I was like, no so <laughs> millennial. This is where detectives Porter and Agrella. But when I write it down, I'm writing page for now. Because as I, as I heartbreakingly explained to Brittany, um, I'm afraid someone might find this and judge me before hiring me. So <laughs> as long as they find, find it after. Yeah. So our coworker who we don't let sit with us, talks to Benson and Stabler about Vicky Craft. And they ask about the green bike. And he's like, yeah, I thought it might have been a bike messenger. And he even found a bike messenger service that used green bikes called Green Machine Bike Messenger. Very inventive name. Stabler, they come in hot. And I suspect, I know we kind of differ on this, but I suspect it's because they're mad that this guy had a little bit more evidence. So Stabler's like, Victoria Craft. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he brings out her file and he goes, you charged her $100 an hour for 87 hours. And I'm like, okay, at least he was working on it. That's 87 hours logged. Guarantee you Latimer put in one. And then he went to go drink milk at a fucking oh, bar. Yeah. So he gives him the case file. Uh, he confirms about the bike courier service. Uh, and then he says that it went out of business by the time he tracked it down. Um, so Stabler questions the PI if he tried to locate the former employees. And he says that he tried, but he didn't have the same access to resources the way the cops do. Although I think if this guy went to the owner, he would have found that he's very amenable. That's to talking about his business. That's true. So I guess he just meant he couldn't track these people down, which I know it would have been a little harder, I guess. Once again, did he not tell? I guess her cop just sucks. So I guess if he'd try to give her this information, it wouldn't have really gone anywhere. But it, it just sounds like all these people sat on all this information. Which is why I'm sympathetic to Craig and I feel like all these people sat on this information and he's the one who got fucking screamed at about it. I think you're right. I think kind of the overarching theme here is everyone kind of went, this guy's hard to find. He's skinny with long hair in 1995. What do you want from us? He's riding a bicycle. What do you want? Dun dun. So we're at the bullpen and Munch is like, so John Doe is a bike messenger. What is he invisible? And Benson says that John Doe basically is an everyday guy, blooded into the background, and he stalked his victims closely for months. Um, then she mentions that he was probably just watching them from the park, and that's how he was able to like find out Lois's nickname and Jennifer's dog's name. Uh, so Jeffrey's enters with something helpful as usual and a best, because that's what she does. She didn't make it into the credits, apparently, this whole time, and I really didn't <laughs> notice that. But she is always bringing them some helpful information. She's never not. Right. She comes in and she says she found the owner of the bike messenger service. And apparently the messenger service went bankrupt at some point. And then he opened a laundromat. First of all, I need to note old service, green machine, bike messenger. His new business, clean machine laundromat. I didn't I notice that. That's so cute. That's hilarious. Oh, like, we could have a beer with this guy and would be like, you are so funny. Dead done. So we're at the clean machine laundromat and the former owner. I didn't clock a name for him. Um, I don't think he has one. Yeah. The owner. He says that all of his guys, uh, the guys that worked for him, wore a jumpsuit and rode the green bikes. That was their uniform. It would have been uncomfortable, actually, of a jumpsuit and a bike. Also, how f dumb is this perpetrator that he wore his work uniform and rode his work vehicle to all his crimes? They ask if they can look at his old records to track down some addresses. And he goes, sure. And he walks, he like kind of bounces over to this like closet and he opens the closet and then he pulls out basically a massive treasure chest or one of those chests that you would have brought over to Ellis Island <laughs> in the 1900s. 
No, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was just basically it's like a, it like they all but blew like dust off of it. Um, but so Munch asks how the bike business went under and the owner kind of very jovially, actually, he confirms that he forgot to pay the business taxes. He says he was a better cyclist than a businessman. So I think he just opens up businesses doing what he likes, but he's just not good at the business stuff. They also ask to take that box, the big chest that he hands them, his grandmother's chest, not really. And he's like, sure, if I get audited again, I'll tell them that the cops took everything. He is definitely getting audited again. Oh, for sure. This is going to happen next week. Dun, dun. So back at the station, they start going through the records and they're lamenting that they only have two days left. It's kind of your fault. And they'll never get through these in time. But miraculously, they find a sheet with several deliveries made to Jennifer. That's the third victim's old place of work. And they're like, oh, well, we're just going to question her again and see if this jogs anything. But I'm kind of surprised they didn't go back to her and Vicky and ask about the if they had seen like a bicyclist going around. But whatever. Yeah, that's that's interesting, too. Done, done. So we're at Jennifer's job. Benson and Stabler ask her if she remembered a bike messenger service from her old job. And she says she does. She kind of turns around. She's like, yes, I do. They're like, OK, um, do you remember anything about any of the messengers? I'd rather not say. Uncanny. The way you captured <laughs> her inability to <laughs> express emotions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paige, it's all I did was pretend I never felt any emotion ever. And I delivered the line. So BNS in response to this, and she's kind of making the same face. They do that emoji where it's just the like straight line mouth, like, what? Stapler's like, no, no, no. I think you misunderstand. We think this is related to the person who attacked you. She's like, no, I didn't misunderstand. I don't want to answer the question. They're like, uh. And she waves them into another room. And once they're alone, she says that, Five years could change a lot. And they're like, yeah, I can. And I'm, kind of, I'm not really sure why they responded that way. It's wrong to pursue this. And they're like, is it the trial? Because if you're worried about facing him at trial, and she's like, no, no, it's so much more logical than that, I promise. So Stabler reminds them, reminds Jennifer, that John Doe raped two other women and that he could be a danger to even more people. And Jennifer says, but what if he isn't? Did I do it? No, that was amazing. <laughs> Benson's face is just like, what the fuck? And you actually kind of, I love Mariska. You can kind of see it click in her brain. And she's like, you know who he is. And Jennifer sits down. She's like, we met by accident. So she meets this guy by accident and she recognizes him. He doesn't recognize her. What? Which, which I'm sorry, all caps in my notes. I wrote what? Because you literally stalked her. You knew her dog's name. You knew where she ate. But then five yes, years- wait. Oh my God, I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, what, what the fuck? Yeah. What? You stalked her. Like, of course you remember. So I thought that was weird. Yeah, that's- Unless that's a lie and he just pretended not to and she's an idiot and thinks he didn't. I'm going to go with- I'm going to go with the latter. That makes way more sense. Jennifer would be like that. Jennifer would be like, you know, the guys, I went on a date and he said that he wants to remain friends, but not be romantic, but he wants to remain friends and he's going to call me in a month for brunch. And everyone's like, Jennifer, he's not going to call you for brunch. So they talked and she learned, quote unquote, about his life. And when she was, quote unquote, satisfied that he had changed, Mm. she told him who he was. And he was probably like. Oh, what? Wow. Oh. Oh, My God. Oh, my God. That was you? You look great. 
Olivia's face through this entire thing is just like, what the actual... She says that John Doe wanted to turn himself in after she kind of, she identified herself to him. And she goes, but I talked him out of it. And Benson and Stadler are like, why? There's got, you know, and there's got to be, I'm sure they're sitting there like, there's got to be some damn good reason. Some damn good reason, Jennifer. She goes, he's a changed man. We prayed together. And Stabler goes, you prayed with your rapist? Yes. And to turn him in after that would be a betrayal. A betrayal. I want to mention here, he never told her about the other two. Mm -mm. So he did not tell her everything. So Olivia's in here with Jennifer, and she's kind of got like a weird bit going. I don't know how to describe this. You know what I mean? She's kind of very much like, well, so Jennifer, you're a Quaker. Is that right? I knew you were a fucking Quaker. I could smell them from a mile away the way they are. I don't know why, but anytime anyone brings up Quakers, I think of the line from Miss Congeniality when William Shatner's like, I don't have a gun. My ancestors were Quakers. <laughs> I, just, I just love that line so much. <laughs> this is my favorite movie. That uh, movie is movie- so good. Jennifer argues that love your enemy is in the Bible and that she's proud of herself for living this way. She also expresses her disgust for the justice system um, and says that she doesn't believe that she basically doesn't believe in it. Uh, and that she's made her peace with what happened. So that's when Olivia's like, but the Quakers invented the punishment. Wasn't it like the punitive system? Yes. <laughs> like, they invented punishments. <laughs> she's like, yes, but it has been perverted beyond recognition. That's true. I hate you, but you're not wrong. Yeah, in that way, you're right, Jennifer. But also... So Olivia's like, okay, well, maybe you're at peace with what happened. But what about his other victims? And Jennifer's like, ignores what she said. She's like, I've thought this through. And Olivia's like, okay, well, you need to hear out the other victims. And so they take her to the nice interrogation room. <laughs> I wrote that too. The nice interrogation room. I didn't notice if Brian Cassidy's poster is still there. Like, you may not think you could be raped. I swear I saw it this episode. I didn't put it in my notes, but I thought I saw it. And I was like, oh, that stupid thing's still here. I thought maybe <laughs> now that the show was getting a little more serious, they would have taken it down. But Right. I was surprised that Brian didn't take up taking my poster cap. I worked really hard on it. And someone told me it was actually not super appropriate. <laughs> That's why we don't use this interrogation room. Ed Tucker from Internal Affairs told me I had to take it with me. So in the nice interrogation room, we have Vicky, Lois, and Jennifer all together. Stabler sitting in a chair, like monitoring. And we need him, apparently, in case Vicky decides she wants to bitch slap Jennifer. Yeah. So this is where you really see the juxtaposition of all their personalities come out. Which is, I thought was pretty cool. This is where I told Brody I thought it was kind of like a play. Um, because, like, the, the the way they're kind of talking is a little bit play-y, too. You know, like, the way they're delivering lines. But, like, just the different characters and their snapped up, you know, the reactions and things was very good. And I usually don't yes. like plays. So Vicky asks Jennifer for John Doe's name. And Jennifer says that she knows what Vicky has been through. But she has made a spiritual promise to herself that she would protect his identity. Vicky's like, his name, please. <laughs> yeah vicky then questions uh that jennifer is probably hiding this guy so that she can quote have it have him all to herself basically vicky says that she thinks that jennifer wants to keep this guy kind of a secret so that she can like lord over his head that she could turn him in at any time and jennifer's like i don't want that type of power so poor lois chimes in and she's like please i just need to know who he is and jennifer goes 
Mm-mm. Finding out his name won't give you peace. How dare you? Yes. Lois is afraid that anytime she leaves her apartment, he could be walking next to her on the street. Like Cragen said earlier, picking her up in a cab. Jennifer has the benefit of knowing his face and knowing who he is. Lois and Vicky do not have that. And yeah, the fact she says, believe me, it changed nothing. And it's like, you don't get to tell anyone else how to feel about this. Vicky asks if Jennifer's, this is kind of funny. Um, It's not funny, but it's something I would do. So Vicky asks if Jennifer's employers know that she's harboring a fugitive and reveals that one of her company, one of of Vicky's companies has their insurance for 600 people through Jennifer's insurance company. She doesn't own the insurance company. She just works there. And so Jennifer's like, what do you mean, Vicky? And I'm like, don't say her name, bitch. And Vicky goes, I'm not sure I can keep my business at a place that employs someone who's a betrayer of women. And I was like, that's right, Vicky. Fucking, I hope Jennifer gets fired over this. And Olivia says, sit down. Vicky sits and Lois just looks at Jennifer and she screams, who is he? Do you know what it's like leaving the house and thinking that any man could be him? I wanted to pay for what he did to me. Tell me his name, you stupid bitch. Oh, she lets her have it. And Jennifer looks a little shaken. She looks shaken. Actually, this is the most um, emotion Jennifer has shown this whole episode, but still not a lot. She just kind of has her mouth open and her eyes are a little a little wide. She's like, oh. So Sabler decides at that point, you know, to take Jennifer out. She's like, basically, before you get fucking hurt, lady. So she turns as he's leading her out, looks at Lois and says, Lois, I hope you find peace. And Lois just screams at her. She's like, shut up, you stupid freak. Jennifer's face. She's like, it's, it's, she looks so confused why everyone is so upset with her. Yes. And it just makes me so angry on behalf of the other two women because Jennifer does know what it's like to be afraid that he's out there. And then she got to see him. She got to. And I mean, if that's what she wants to do on a personal level, forgive him and move on, that's fine. But she does not have the right to expect that of the other two women. So inappropriate for her to be trying to, I'm not trying to be facetious here, police the way these two other women are feeling. She's speaking down to them. She's being condescending and being like, I promise you, it won't give you peace. It won't change anything. Believe me, this isn't what you need to do. And it's like, you do not get to tell me that. You're imposing your, pe- your religion on these people when you think about it. And also, at any time, her rapist, now that he's just this enlightened, forgiven man, what should have happened was he should have said to her, I actually assaulted two other women. And she should have said, you need to go talk to them and tell them who you are. And if they don't want to press charges, then whatever. All three of us don't care. You're good to go. But no, she decided they had the peace between the two of them. And that's it. And that's fine. And these two other women can just take her word that he's not going to do it again. It seems almost like this is her... Because it's so controlling, kind of. Like, aside from the, it's like, kind of take away the religious aspect. Her, like, aggressiveness in defending him is almost very controlling. Like, she doesn't seem to believe that, she, she almost feels like she's above the law, kind of, too. Like, she's yes. sort of like, you can't compel me to do this. These are my morals. And to me, I'm almost like, is this a very, 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 very severe, misguided way of her coping with this? It's, it's kind of like what Vicky said. It's it's weird. It's almost like the way she's doubling down, it almost like the desperateness of it almost feels less about religion and more about like, this is about me and I need you guys to like back off. I need like, no. And once again, if there were no other attackers invo- or no other victims involved, I would say she would have the right to not tell them his name. 
But the minute she found out about the other two, I'm sorry. Dun dun. I wish Vicky had gotten the chance to slap her, but I know not in this episode. I guess she should pull her business. I would. I would. You know what? You shouldn't be here. Go live. Go live with the wherever the Quakers originated somewhere. Go back to Appalachia. So they have 15 hours left, and Cragen asks Stabler if they have tried every method of persuasion. Stabler's like, "Yep, spiritual, moral." Cragen's like. Fucking cool. We're going to try legal now. She does not have the right to remain silent. Okay. I was attracted to him in that moment. I know I was pissy with him in the beginning, especially (laughs) when I learned. They're going to get a judge to issue a material witness order. Olivia suddenly has her panties in a twist and Mm. she's like, wait a minute. That's just for self-incrimination. And Craig is literally like, I don't care. Yeah. He goes, I don't care. So Stabler says, we've never forced a rape victim to talk when they didn't want to. And I wrote, untrue, because you forced Gina to help you catch a corrupt parole board last week, and she was 1,000% a rape victim, and she didn't want to. And you berated Harper in her apartment. Yes. (laughs) You guys love doing this. You absolutely love forcing rape victims. Actually, Olivia, first episode, went and bothered Marta and was like accused her. She was like, your husband's not really your son's father. And she's like, oh, you really want to know about that? Here, Here you go. Yeah, Marta's like, here's uh, some straight facts. Um, so yeah, these are lies. But as Brittany said last week, and I thought it was, it was very sage. Each episode exists in its own little universe. universe. So they're different people with different beliefs each and every day. We're back at the Supreme Court. And yeah, we're back at the Supreme Court. Yeah, here we are. Fucking Jennifer. The judge calls for Jennifer to approach the bench. A woman credited as younger Quaker kind of pats her gently on her hand and is like, you go, girl. Stick to your morals. Our spaghetti god believes in. The guy from the Quaker Oats box was is like, <laughs> yeah, you're doing a good job. I'm That is so disrespectful. I've never met a Quaker in real life. They kind of strike me as sovereign citizens. So Jennifer goes up to the stand and it's a lady judge finally. So we have some logic up in this bitch. Lady judge asks Jennifer, do you know the name of, she used fancy court jargon but she basically was like do you know the name of this person who committed these crimes that he is accused of and she says i do and she's like are you willing to give us his name so that we may you know pursue an arrest and save the world and she's like i respectfully decline to answer and the judge is like respectfully your ass is going to lock up goodbye boom boom she's like i remand you to the custody of the women's correctional facility now olivia who suddenly jumped sides this episode, jumps up and she runs over to Jennifer. She's like, you don't have to do this. And Jennifer's like, "Uh, actually, I do. How do you know your values until they are put to the test? Jennifer is just a freaking martyr. Right. And this is kind of, again, like I said, I feel like this is more about very much more about her and her like coping than it is about like actually doing anything productive or morals, because it's just like, what are you talking about? How old are you? I swear Jennifer's getting off on this. It's almost like, is this a game to you? Like, you think it's fun to like, oh, now I'm going to jail for my morals. When it's like, it, this is not a protest for civil rights. Are you fucking kidding right. me? Lois has been afraid to leave her apartment for five years. And you're just like, mm, my morals. Mm, I'm putting my values to the test. Fuck off, Jennifer. And Lois was more fundamentally. I mean, they were all because obviously, um, I'll probably edit this into the end. Um, obviously. Uh, Vicky is traumatized because you could tell that she's angry. She's just pissed. She's, you know, she, she mentioned how she's suing like a couple more people. And I'm like, this is her 
coping. She's mad. She's yes. going to take it out, take it out. I'm putting that in quotes because she deserves to take it out on everybody because that is how she's coping. Jennifer has obviously found religion and she's using it like that. Lois was probably the worst off, not that you can measure. My my favorite movie and my favorite actor are now ruined. She kept being like, he took these things from me. So even happy memories for Lois, like she just doesn't have them anymore. Parting note on this scene is that Cragen asks Benson if she's okay. Um, and Benson says, we just sent a rape victim to lockup. No, I am not okay. Okay, so last week... <laughs> You, when you were horrifically abusing Gina and almost caused her to lose her life. Literally, we're a direct cause. Justice for Gina Silver. So, dun dun, <laughs> we're in Craig's office. Uh, Commissioner Morris is back. And I read originally he is a woke king and a real ally to women. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's a paper pusher. Commissioner Morris is just pissed at Craig because Jennifer went to jail. Um, same reasons as Olivia. He's saying, like, you sent a rape victim to jail. What is wrong with you, Craig? And there's, like, such a height difference. So I was a little confused here because Lyle goes, every effort needs to be made to not further traumatize the victim. And Craig shrugs and goes, news to me. And I was like, well, I think so. This goes to your point and his point in this scene where Craig believes, and he could be right, he probably knows more than I do, that basically these guys, like, they fucked up too. Like, no one knew it. Like, like the, the Comstat team, like, maybe fucked this up too. Like, they weren't doing their due diligence and they let this sit. And so then, like, that's what Craig, I think, is alluding to sort of like, oh, you really care? Like, oh, you care all of a sudden, you know? That was my th- thought, but at first I was like, you're not supposed, you know, you're not supposed to traumatize the victims, right? <laughs> so I think my main issue is the DNA people, and I don't, I'm not saying this is their job, but there should have been some sort of procedure where they called Cragen and were like, hey, you've got a cold case. We've got new information. Instead of that information going to Comstat and then Comstat sat on it for three days until the meeting and then just kind of publicly shamed Cragen. I think that's why Cragen's pissed. I think he's like, right. he's he did fuck up in that and not looking into them. But he's also like, OK, but I could have used those three extra days and I would have. The guy's like, you are treading on thin ice here. And Cragen's like, so then suspend me. He goes, you want me to? And Cragen goes, yeah, do it. But until you take me off this job, I've got work to do. I did love that scene because he was basically like, write me up or get the get the hell out of here. And I was like, yeah, he did That's say that. That's I thought he was kind of hot. It was hot. So done, done. Now we're at the Quaker church. I wrote, there are no oats and I am disappointed. So BNS are speaking to Jennifer's pastor. I didn't clock his name, but he's kind of sexy. He tells him that he actually tried to, when Jennifer came to him with this story about John Doe, he actually did try to persuade her to turn John Doe into the police, and he never encouraged her to make contact, maintain contact with him. So I'm going into this, I'm like, this guy's good. He's a good guy. And he actually, and he like says, he's like, Quakers often sit on juries, and we, in general, respect the police. He said that. I'm not crazy. My favorite part is he's like, and lots of people are, were Quakers. Nixon was a Quaker. And Stabler goes, yeah, Nixon loved putting people in jail. Some of them even deserved to go there. And the guy makes like a pained face like, yeah, thanks. I was going to say, Nixon's not a great endorsement for a religion. They ask him for a list of church members because they think, and they do say this to him, that Jennifer 
Olivia says, Jennifer mentioned that she prayed with her attacker. So can we get a list of your church members? Because we think he might have been in your meeting or something. They called it, they called church a meeting. So although sexy Quaker leader guy, cult leader guy agrees with them and respects the law and court system, he refuses to give them the list of names. And at first he says it's because Quakers have a long history of civil disobedience. Like that was his main, he was like, we have a long history of civil disobedience. I was like, so you're not going to give them the list just to be civilly disobedient? Yeah. And he cites, he goes, we oppose slavery and the Vietnam War. And I'm like, all right, but this is not either of those things. Olivia basically is like, okay, that's cute. This is a sexual predator here. Then he's like, well, if I give you the list, you're going to have it forever. And they're like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the munch theory because he's like, yeah. And then you're going to be able to like look into all my people. And I'm like, well, what are you people doing that we need to worry about? I mean, at this point, you just have a list of names and that they went to this meeting. I don't know. I sign into shit all the time. So Olivia's like, I'm going to do my favorite thing and I'm going to get a warrant. Yes, I wrote that too. I was like, so Olivia does her thing. He's like, do it. But if you do, I must warn you when you return, I won't be alone. (laughs) Okay. I wrote that. If you know anything about the Quakers, they're literally pacifists. So what type of retaliation? We find out it's sitting and staring. (laughs) This whole scene. It's just like, oh my God, it's so like calmly unhinged. So, done, done. I wrote later at the church. They literally just go, they cut away. They go get, Olivia go gets her precious warrant. So it's B&S and Cragen and they roll up to the church and- BNS looks sheepish about this because they don't agree with forcing the Quakers to give up this information. And Benson says, I feel uncomfortable without this. Meanwhile, Detective Porters and Pager knock on the door like, hey, hey, open can we up. Come in? Open up. De- open up. Detective Porter has a satchel for the, for the trinkets. She's like, I'm going to take some of your trinkets. I have a warrant. <laughs> you poke your head and you're like, there better not be any incest in there. I will find it. Pretty sure there's no incest. I didn't get a tinkle or an inkling, but I'm coming in. Meanwhile, Livia's like, I know I got really excited about this warrant, but I'm very uncomfortable. So uncomfortable with this. So they walk in and, you know, that threat, that th- <laughs> the threat that was made mere seconds ago. So I'm waiting. I'm like, oh, God, what's going to happen? Oh. They knock on the door. No one answers. They walk in and there's just a bunch of white people. White people. <laughs> Not only that, they're all like, they're so old. (laughs) And they all just turn and they stare at them. And they're sitting in this church, no music. And then Pastor Sexy stands up. He says, turn around and go back to the police station or stay and let us worship. And I'm like, again, or fucking what? I'm like, option three, I march back there and get these documents, you old fucks. Move aside. And now we know where Jennifer got her weird bossy attitude from being like, uh-huh. it's from this fucking guy. <laughs> so, yeah, they go into like the back room where there are more elderly white women sitting back there. And the elderliest of all of them is clutching a little box on the desk, a box of records, I guess. So then this one slightly younger white lady 
they walk into the office and she goes, please don't do this. We all value separation of church and state in this country. This is not that. They're using an argument that doesn't apply here. I know. I'm like, so Olivia rips the box out of this old lady's hands. Just kidding. She just kind of. She goes, ma'am, may I take this? And it's a Rolodex, by the way. So literally, they just want a list of people's names. So they play some sad music under this, and I'm not sad at all. Not at all. I don't care. Maybe in the year 2000, that room was sympathetic, but in 2023, that room literally and figuratively did not age well. Since then, again, we're in the bullpen, so there's six hours left until the statue runs out on Jennifer's case, because as we know, just to recap, she's just sitting in jail right now, knowing his name and being like, hmm, I'm a good person. Ah, my morals. Wrong. So... Everyone is here, and they take a list of everyone who worked at the bike messenger service during the time of the attacks, and they start to cross-check it against a list of the Quakers. And like Paige said, six hours to go. But thank God, because... Thank God, because in two minutes, Munch holds up two cards. The bike messenger service has a Harvey Dennis with one N, and the Quakers... Oh, no. Yeah, it was. it could have been either or, frankly. I think you're right. It was um, Munch goes... I have a Harvey Dennis with two ends. And then Stabler's like, oh, yeah, that name was on this list over here. Let me run it in the system. And he goes, oh, no, one end. Yeah, this is what I did this too. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard. Names are hard. So he's like, oh, it's only one end. And then they're like, try another end because this Harvey Dennis has another end. And it was the same records. They were about to toss out the Harvey Dennis's because of the N. And then they're like, wait, no, on this other paper, it has one N. Yes. And I'm like, okay, well, it's kind of unlikely there would have been a Harvey Dennis in both. So why don't you try both in the system? Right. And then wouldn't Harvey Dennis with one N really be Harvey Denise? It is Harvey Denise, actually, because it is one N. Oh. Stabler looks up Harvey Denise (laughs) and he was arrested in 1995 for attempted burglary. And Olivia's like, oh, my God. That wasn't a burglary. He was breaking in to rape this woman. He was attempting rape number four. Exactly. It was like the week or something, like two weeks after the string. So he was in jail for 15 months for that attempted burglary and paroled in September 1996. And he was only paroled because he was hospitalized after forcible sexual assault in prison. Cragen's literally like, wow, that's so sad. Go get him. Yeah. Because even Olivia was like, he got raped. And they're like, yeah, oh, well. So they find out where he works. Um, but I didn't write down, dun dun. Um, I didn't write down what this was. Like what? Building. I have no idea what this business was, but it appears to be sketchy. Bets and Stabler are outside. They're doing that thing where they're rolling up to the door. and they're But they're not uncomfortable this time. They're very comfortable. Benson says, I walk past this place every day when I come home from the gym. And Stabler's like, yeah, I know. Stabler and Richard White are like, yeah, we totally know that. Yeah, uh, I know. And that's your convenience store. And that's your laundromat. (laughs) Um, But what Stabler really says is, I want to see the look on this dirtbag's face when he knows he's going down. And they only have five hours left. So this is literally skin of their teeth. So they walk into this establishment. Whatever it is. um, And they go up to the front desk and there's a balding man sitting there. And they're like, hi, we're looking for Harvey Denise. And he's like, oh, that's me. And they're like, you're under arrest, motherfucker. Stand up and put your hands behind your back. And he's <laughs> this kind of weird look comes over his face. And he's like, I'm going to have to buzz you guys in. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. They pull out their guns. And he's like, no, I really need to buzz you in. So he like, Deet! 
presses the little buzzer and they come around. And Paige called it last week because what happens, Paige? Harvey Dennis comes out from around his desk and he is in a wheelchair. He is paralyzed from the waist down. Benson and Stabler are both like, like, ooh, oh, what? Uh, what? He kind of looks at them, his face the whole time. He's kind of like, yeah. Yeah. They cut to outside and Benson and Stabler have him next to their cop car. Harvey Dennis says, because Stabler kind of looks at him and Harvey Dennis goes, you could just lift me up and put me in the back. It doesn't hurt. I'm paralyzed from the ribs down. And then he goes to Benson, just fold the chair up and put it in the trunk. It folds pretty easy. So then Stabler leans down, asks him, how did it happen? Um, he says he was making a delivery on 3rd and 11th and that he made a right turn and he um, collided with a big side mirror, quote, and that collision smashed his spine. I don't really understand the physics of that. Wouldn't that smash up your face? I've never seen a side mirror. Maybe he was thinking about like when they prop the doors open for stores, but that wouldn't be like a side mirror. Unless it was like one of those comedy scenes where these two guys are walking a giant mirror, you know, into an office building and this guy made a turn and he collided with it. Like, why couldn't they have just made it simple? Like, oh, I was doing a delivery and I got hit by a car. Right. I mean, maybe because they didn't want him to be able to sue somebody, but like they probably could have sued the side mirror person, too. (laughs) That's what Taylor lifts him up and he holds him like a bride in his arms. But he's also, like, trying to not look him in the eye while he's doing it. He's kind of, like, looking into the heavens. And he is totally okay with it, too. He's just like, yeah, yeah, got me. Put me in the car. So Benson's folding up the chair, and she's just looking kind of, like, out at the world, sort of like, huh. And I was thinking, you better not be like, oh, my gosh, maybe we shouldn't have caught him. Right. He is. That's stupid. No, he still needs to go to jail for the three rapes. I agree. No, I'm hoping that this look of like shock and dismay on her face is because she's like, that was like a weird kind of cool turn of events. Like, no offense, but like, yeah, best person to be randomly paralyzed would be someone like this. Best candidate for random paralyzation due to a collision with a big side mirror would be this guy. So, yeah, I agree. It's like, what is it? Why are you mad? Fix your face. Detectives Porter and Paige are just like, Olivia, snap out of it. Live. No, this guy sucks. So executive producer Dick Wolf, we understand what Jennifer meant by he can't hurt anyone anymore. And she knows that. To say the least. (laughs) I still don't care. Like, I'm still not like, oh, maybe they should have just let him be. How excited do you think Vicky Craft's going to get to be in court when she sees him in his wheelchair? She's going to be like, oh, what's up? I just got a little bit emotional for her because like Mm. that would be like the because it's not only you finally have him right. Jail is good enough karma for most people. Um, This is like the ultimate type of karma because like he is going to jail and he lost the use of his legs. And it still pisses me off that Jennifer thinks thinks he's just so enlightened and worthy of forgiveness because I'm like, he never apologized to the other women. He just apologized to you. Right. Because you caught him. Because you were like, hey, it's me, your victim. And he was like, oh, shit. Yes. Hi. Sorry about that. You know, she's so dumb. I'm sure he was like, I really should turn myself in 
shouldn't I? Even though I was raped in jail and I'm in a wheelchair, so I really couldn't do this anymore. But I, I will turn myself in. And she was like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And he was like, great, I won't. Thanks. No, you're actually, that raises a very good point. And um, one that it's like, I would have loved for them to explore more is like, maybe did he I mean lie like what did she like meet him and he knew because like I mean he might not know about the statue of but like Vicky kind of made a good point like she got him in a chokehold there whether she wanted to admit it or acknowledged it or not like so he probably did kind of think like I gotta play weird ball with this girl or else yeah she could put me in they presented us with a very fascinating storyline her bizarre the Quakers in general yeah that was interesting it was almost like they were taking charge of something it was kind of a, almost like a, a weird psychological study because it's like what do you guys like really think that you're above above everybody it's weird they're supposed to be like so like oh no we love everyone but it's like you definitely feel that you're more important than these two other people these two other women and their fears and the pastor whatever guy he was like no you should turn him in that's you need to tell that to the police. And she was like, well, no, I've decided to make a moral judgment and I'm not going to. And he was like, you're right. So it's like the whole congregation kind of disagreed with her. But because she said that it was her morals, they were like, no, that's right. Right. It was weird. That was weird. And the whole little sit-in they were doing, the nonviolent sit-in that they kept being threatening, they're like, you better not go into that office or we're going to keep judging you. I remember when I first watched this, I thought that they were trying to protect Harvey Dennis and they were all like, no, we're backing behind him. He's a changed man. Like we're a community. But it was really because they just didn't want the police to have their names. Yeah, which I do understand various groups who do not want the police to have their names. And I think that's valid, but not these people. Is this yet another charity that is being used for like dirty sex laundering money? Because we will find out. We will find out. They're like, Detectives Porter and Agrella, please, the case is closed. We're like, is it? Those people were weird. They left and the two of us are still in the meeting house and we're like, well, well, well. They're like, we're literally just having a sit-in. I'm just picking up people's things, going into people's purses. They're like, you can't take things. You're like, oh, I can't. It's against my morals not to. So I guess I got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going around sniffing everyone. I'm like picking up all the men's hands and going, not their hands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ew. Oh, 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 no. It's hot. It's hot. <laughs> well, all right. All right, well, guys. guys. We need to go investigate these beating house people further. Yeah. Something's going on there and we're going to find out. It's gross. Well, join us next week. We're going to be talking about season one, episode 15, Entitled. Like these Quakers. Yeah. It's actually the, it's about the Quakers. No, <laughs> that'd be great. I know. We have so many episodes. It's back to Jennifer. We're like, oh, you, you're the entitled person from the episode entitled. We're on to you. I don't want that power. Later, squad. Bye. Bye.